That was a real nice debugging experience in some ways. Yeah, and I think we, we're, we're just getting back to that now. <laughs> <laughs> Bring um, back Dream Weaver. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Off Script by Hey Radio. I'm James and I run an agency called Parallax. And I'm Josh and I run a consultancy called Stack. And today we're going to be talking about application performance. Josh, when you're working on application performance, what would your first step be? Um... I think it would be to baseline where where you are. So you, you need to you need to get a good feeling for where you're at. You need to get that baseline to understand, you know, your application's general performance, some of the things you can improve before before starting any further. I think you need to know where your starting point is. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I mean, we use tools like New Relic, which is really good. Yeah, and they have lots of different agents for .NET, Ruby, PHP, JavaScript. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the more, more mature tool. Well, I say more mature, long-standing tools. It is. They they went a bit. Uh, nuts with their pricing uh, a while <laughs> yeah. ago, but I think they've they've brought it back now with the new Relic one. It's a bit more sane, yeah. um, so it, you can run run it on serverless, and it, it makes sense cost wise. Because they did, they they really went full enterprise, didn't they? They went crazy. It, it was per virtual CPU style pricing and when you have lots of hosts <laughs> they were like especially at a period where auto scaling and everything was rather rather popular um it wasn't ideal for especially for startups that were trying to be a bit leaner yeah that's it uh, there are some alternatives atatus are pretty good um they're not as well known but they have a similar sort of setup um and on the php side we think blackfire.io is absolute magic right um so you have a little browser plugin and you can visit the page in your application. So you might be logged in. You've just on like localhost or uh, either on localhost or we have it running in QA as well. Right. Um, and you can get into a certain part of your application. So you could be partway through a checkout flow or something like that. Uh, okay. You hit the button and it will run that same request multiple times, assuming you're on a get get request, for example. Right. Um, and then it will it'll use that to to get a good baseline of west of site. You can either view it as a timeline or you can drill down into a tree of the cool. time spent. And then you you just sort of use that to, to identify where, where all your issues are. And does that pick up the, the application state? So if you're logged in, does it use all the session states and everything? Yeah, that's it. So you're not hitting a logged out that's cool. thing. Because uh, usually you get your performance problems when you're logged in. You're logged out, hopefully you're caching everything. Yeah. You're just marketing pages, pricing pages. It's not the guts of your app. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it definitely would recommend that alongside New Relic. Because New Relic's more about monitoring what's actually happening in production. Whereas Blackfire is like, I'm debugging this now locally and I need <laughs> yeah. to, to actually see what's going on. So how does that work in terms of, because a lot of the, and we, we'll, we'll cover, you know, front end, back end performance things. We'll, we'll cover the whole kind of stack, but it, a lot of the problems with performance or some of the problems with the performance come around, you know, specific edge cases with maybe certain certain shapes of user, certain types of combinations of data, yeah. um, lot large amounts of data that aren't, you know, maybe paginated properly things like that as a very trivial example but yeah how would you go about recreating that in that kind of black um that black fire kind of scenario you need to make production like data in your local environment yeah um ideally through some kind of automated script or if you can't do that 
take the live data, scrub the local, you have to scrub the emails. Yeah. You don't want to accidentally email them or no. make sure you have a like mail trap or something like that yeah. uh, as an extra buffer. Um, yeah. But yeah, ideally not personal identifiable information on your local laptop. Um, I think that's a really that's a really good um, a really good starting point for this conversation on application performance because you know a lot a lot of the conditions of which you develop locally don't necessarily reproduce what a lot of people experience in production. So that that kind of like for like and and how you do that whether you sanitize data from production or you 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 know, automate you know the generation of an entire data set. Yeah, yeah. Another thing that we sometimes do is on a large IoT platform that we run, we have a sort of QA um, right. environment and we can point our local machines at, at that RDS instance and right. those that InfluxDB instance because those you can't really recreate the performance of those services no. on your local machine because the, the data is too big to fit. Yeah, uh, It'll fill your laptop full of... Yeah. voltages and data that you don't really want yeah. just sat there um it is difficult to 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 evaluate the performance of things like dynamo db and things like that so, um, so with with that kind of instance where you connect to a remote service how do you keep the schema in date when you're when maybe many branches and devs are diverging from from what that state is so we have um, a YAML file and some developers hate YAML but we have a I love <laughs> config option in there where we can have a per branch database oh, nice. and it'll go and make that based on the migrations folder oh, brilliant um, and you can just turn that on and off per repo that's a good way to do it um, obviously you can do that manually if you want Mm. Uh, but it gets messy. There's quite a lot of ways as well to generate that data. So um, in, in Ruby and in Rails, you've got um, different factory kind of gems that can basically, you can give it the shape of the data and it'll go away and it'll generate all the emails and passwords and yeah, associated fa records. Factories and seed is a great way of doing that, definitely. Um, and you could even build a performance test. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in terms of identifying problems, um, yeah getting it production like locally somehow is a really good idea so the so you mentioned new relic do you still use new relic uh, now or is it is it kind of mainly blackfire or is it a combination of the two or we use new relic annotators in production um and we use various bug monitoring tools depending on the project yeah um bug snag for javascript stuff um flare for laravel stuff um, and that will flag a few performance bits Right. things time out and things like that um, but yeah mainly you're looking in New Relic and Atatus for your application performance monitoring stuff and a lot of these hook into so you know with um, with Ruby there's App Signal is one of my favourites yeah. um, it's, it started as an exception tracker but it's got a lot of performance related stuff in it now oh nice um, but a lot of them hook in quite deep into the runtime of, of the app and into you know into the actual language itself so you can start to show the full stack traces and, and what's going on really quite deep down. Oh, that's great. And a lot of them will actually pick out the SQL queries that your app's making and make recommendations on indexes that you need to add. Which um, is great, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, th I think SQL performance is, is something that when you're using something like Ruby or Laravel, it's very easy to just knock together a load of models with associations and you get that N plus one problem. Yeah. Just sprinkling a little bit of eager loading here and there in the right places will get you quite far. I guess that's one of the, you know, one of the beauties and, and kind of downfalls of using a, an ORM, an object relational mapper uh, library, you know, in terms of how 
how it hides a lot of what's going on behind the scenes you know it hides a lot of the commands that it's giving to the database and yeah um you know definitely in in rails over the last few years you know it's been, there's a lot of work that's been done to really you know make the logs a lot more readable see what the query uh, is being run and um, in particular with eagle loading there's suggestions as part of the rm libraries to say you know you might want to eagle load this because you seem to be using this join table a lot for yeah. example yeah yeah um and i think people worry a little bit too much about it sometimes um in the initial stages um because if you if you spend your time overly optimizing while you're trying to build out the first version of the app mm. It, you're going to waste a lot of time and it might not even succeed. <laughs> like your big problem is getting people to use it and then then optimizing it. I guess that's a, that's an interesting point though. So there's, there's, there's kind of basic due diligence that you can do as part of building an app. So, you know, we'll get onto um, Lighthouse and some of the more front end related stuff shortly, but you know, there's basic expectations that we as engineers put on each other. You know, yeah. you can easily inspect the front end of app. You can easily see when it's built, maybe not to the best standards. Yeah. Um, but I think there's a different perception with the back end side, which is, you know, you probably don't need to optimize everything to start with. See where your pain points are uh, and, and react to that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there seems to be kind of two camps of thought there, I think. And you can also have things like background jobs yeah. that run tasks. It's a good, good practice anyway. Anything that takes longer than... 20, 30 milliseconds yeah. you might consider putting into a background job. Yeah. Uh, especially if you talk to a third party service like SMTP Relay or your, I don't know, you resizing an image yeah. is an obvious example. Um, yeah. I remember the, the email one was the, the first use case that I found. It was because you used to send it in process and obviously, you know, sometimes it would crap out and, and then yeah, yeah. And the whole user journey is ruined and actually, you know, that can be resolved uh, on a backend job. Yeah. It's, you don't want let's say you've written a really naive implementation where you write something to the database, send them a confirmation email and then do some other logic. Yeah. And the fact that the SMTP flaked out for a second means you sort of got a customer in a halfway, like not very nice state. So you haven't used transactions. I mean, you don't need to do all this fancy stuff, but if you just start moving a few bits into jobs. Yeah. It just goes a lot more smoothly. I guess the the counter argument is the added complexity by decoupling those things, especially when you're doing, as you just said, like a transaction of a few different actions. Yeah, can get funky. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, yeah, you'd you'd either want them all to happen or or not. But um, with working with distributed tools and systems, it's always not always that simple, is it? <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, it's just sending an email is the most basic example that you can think of. But I mean, I imagine where you are at the moment, there's many more times <laughs> like many, many disparate systems and I even remember when, when we built the well, one of the bigger NHS platforms and it had a big content manager uh, where you chuck a zip file at it and it and unpack it and start to add it all to the to the library yeah um, lots I, of different I think I remember steps. that <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah yeah I mean if you do remember it it might be because you're slightly wounded by it but, <laughs> but yeah it's obviously many complex steps that all are quite linear in their sequence you know you unpack it you add each item to the database and you do uh, a few more things that that sort of stuff makes uh, makes for interesting coding yeah definitely and how do you monitor performance of of that as well yeah um, so in in new relic and Atatus, you can flag things as background jobs yes which have different um they call it Abdex criteria. So Abdex is a score that you use to to sort of rate how performant your app is. Yeah, like 0 0.9 and above is good, um, but it, it it's really good way of of 
figuring out if your application performance is dipping uh, yeah. and you don't want to include background long running tasks in that metric because users don't see it so they don't care <laughs> um, although you do need to keep an eye on it because someone somewhere might have written some horrible SQL query that's going <laughs> to fall over at some point yeah. um, I think that's that's a, that's a good point though so you know it might be a bit outside the scope of the topic for this one but the developer experience of that is really important you know in terms of you know, everyone's had a test suite that's bloated and, and taken too long um, and, and, co and cost the, the devs a lot of time. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I, I guess application performance also looks at that DevX kind of side of things too. Yeah. I mean, if, you, if you've got like an uncached, like raw version of this running on a slower laptop and it's slow with production-like data, devs are going to slow down their development. Like yeah. they're not going to have a very nice time. So speeding things up actually speeds up development as well and and, and improves the culture um it can yeah. even you know in in some in some more drastic cases you know uh, reduce attrition and, and, yeah, and yeah. You know, all those sorts of things you don't want to wake up and you go back to that application <laughs> and it's running in already running inside a vm inside a vm because <laughs> yeah. it's still running from last night because <laughs> it's docker for mac and it's it's like inception um yeah it's, it's, if just speeding that up. We can probably say good. goodbye to Docker for Mac, uh, sponsoring any sort of podcast in the future, I guess, <laughs> <laughs> along with NPM. <laughs> Maybe they'll figure something out where it, it runs a bit more bare bones on yeah. the M1, but who knows? Um, yeah, definitely. Um, cool. So I, I guess in terms of that, that tooling as well, um, it'd, be, it'd be a miss not to mention, you know, the, the huge advancements Chrome DevTools have made uh, over the last few years. You know, that that, that is such a such a powerful part of your arsenal as, a, as an engineer now. Absolutely. I remember back in the day, uh, Joe Hewitt's firebug and he oh, used was, to include was, a little script tag and yeah. you were in IE and you could open it. That was a game changer. It was. Yeah. That's where console.log came from. Yeah. And that's, that's my early, um, <laughs> how, how is this actually working debugging experience? It wasn't just an alert box. Um, that was a lifeline as well. If you like, you know, in, in, in what was a black box at the time, um, that was such a lifeline as an engineer or dev just to, just to go, Oh my God. I can actually see oh, what's yeah. happening. Yeah. And that, that was sort of the, the birth of developer tools in browser, I think. Yeah. I mean, I know Dreamweaver used to have some rudimentary stuff and obviously the WYSIWYG thing, but you couldn't really see what was going on in the that was an JS in, engine. That was an in uh, an in IDE browser, wasn't it? So yeah. it wasn't really a true representation of what your users were getting. I think they had some horrible Trident thing where mm. it's sort of IE, but with their own bits in it. <laughs> it was ahead of its, well, you know, Dreamweaver in general, I think was a bit ahead of its time, but uh, or not ahead of its time, but it definitely defined an era. But I think the way that that interacted with the browser was quite ahead of its time. You know, yeah, yeah. that was a real nice debugging experience in some ways. Yeah. And I think we were, we're just getting back to that now. <laughs> <laughs> Bring um, back Dreamweaver. <laughs> but in a much nicer way. Yeah. Um, and yeah, as soon as you could actually add timing uh, commands to I mean, that was the most basic thing. You could actually do a start and stop yeah. and you do micro time commands and really basic sort of how long did this bit take yeah. between this and the callback. That was my first sort of experience in debugging JavaScript. Mm -hmm. So obviously um, with JSPDF, which is still ticking along, yeah. uh, <laughs> that had some performance issues quite early on because we were doing really daft stuff in IE6 like where we we're trying to yeah. create massive binary files in, <laughs> yeah. in, a, in a creaking JavaScript engine so yeah that was fun um, but these days it's 
is so much nicer with Chrome DevTools. You've got Lighthouse, obviously, yeah. um, which you can run really nicely on your local machine, but it's, I find it quite um, hit and miss to what score you get because your machine might be doing something in the background. You've got Xcode open, you're running it on someone else's laptop. You've got, you've got your database full of, uh, full of production <laughs> data. <laughs> yeah, um, whereas if you use web.dev, which is Google's online version of that yeah they run it in a consistent container for you for free and then you can actually share the results which is brilliant right um and it because it's a consistent metric you can see if you've actually improved or not so can you would you plug any of that into you know any part of ci process can you can you plug it in in that way or is it more you'd use a, a library as part of that i haven't heard of it being plugged in but i imagine you could mm. um obviously the the common one is um, web page test, isn't it? Yes. Uh, which uh, I think we know some people that work there, but yeah, they they're the sort of they were the go to, weren't they? And yeah. I think it's actually really flexible in terms of you can actually ship your own performance tests to them, and they'll run them for you, and they can run from different regions. And right. That's like the the daddy version, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the grown up um, version of it. Yeah. I think that's, um, you know, plugging things into your automation setup is a, is a huge part of making sure it sticks as well. So I know we've kind of mentioned this a little bit in the past, but reducing that friction from a dev point of view to make sure that you stick to it. And so, you know, having dashboards of Lighthouse metrics and, uh, you know, APM tool metrics there to show when you deviate from an acceptable level um, is, is a huge part of team culture, I think, too. Yeah, absolutely. I think... Um yeah, once you've identified these problems, you need to like surface them often and yeah. actually monitor the difference between them. Yeah, um, and then you can get on to actually fixing some of these mm. some of these issues. Once you've got this good baseline, uh, you've tested it in web.dev or whatever tools you've got your application performance monitoring set up. Yeah, you know what's on fire and what isn't. You yeah. can start then planning out right what do we attack, and it is diminishing returns. You might find that you can spend a few days on the front end performance and then you hit a roadblock where you just like, well, I've spent another hour and I've only shaved off a millisecond. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it just, it, there's a point where you can just stop. Um, but you can do things like you, you've obviously got all the next gen image formats. Yeah. So you, a quick way to do that would to be use something like Cloudinary. Um, obviously be mindful of cost because it can be quite spinny. Mm. Um, and obviously defer lazy loading, things like that. Yeah, I think that... Um the, the kind of image format um, journey on the web has been a really interesting one. Um, I remember uh, when we started doing these events in 2013, there was um, Dom and Ed. Uh, yeah, yeah. Who created... Resource it. Resource yeah. it, yeah, which was, um, which was a really, at the time, a completely like game-changing service to, on the fly, you know, convert and crop and, and resize and optimize images. Yeah, which got bought by Fastly, so I should really be plugging Fastly here. <laughs> yeah. Fastly have a, an amazing image resizing service. <laughs> Uh, we are open to sponsorship. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think that was, you know, that was a really interesting point where, you know, with, with very little effort from the engineering side, you could then get, uh, you know, an optimized set of images for not just for, you know, for, for desktop. It was, you know, we could optimize for devices and, and all yeah. sorts. The reason you should give that to someone else to do is because it is way more complex than you think it is. <laughs> yeah. And you need to generate so many different variants because each browser supports different things, yeah. different versions of browsers support different things and, and also 
also just maintaining those those formats and and how do you expire them and we should get Dominic on really to have a yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah it was it, it, i imagine it is quite a complex it's problem mine's greater than ours working on this yeah <laughs> definitely but yes please but, please carry on <laughs> but from my point of view put script in image go small <laughs> yeah um, and that's how you want it to be really um and, and there's no and that's the thing as well uh, obviously you do have costs to to bear in mind but I, I, there's absolutely no shame from using services like that that can help you get something to market quicker and and probably solve problems a lot better than you know it's like the crypto conversation we had in the last podcast yeah um probably just don't touch it just use a service or a library for it yeah and they'll keep it updated and, and keep improving it for you so you don't have to keep up with the latest and greatest yeah um, and you can put all this image resize stuff in your webpack or whatever pipeline but it really really whizzes up the fans <laughs> on my computer <laughs> um, and, yeah and you, it seems to be like I don't know if you find this when you jump on random projects but it feels like you're just always compressing images <laughs> if, it, if it does get, it's like the cache always never really works properly maybe or maybe I'm doing something wrong <laughs> well I think, I think most of them under the hood just, just use image magic oh. yeah <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> on your system and that's probably why the fans are spinning <laughs> but yeah um so there's a there's a conversation going on at the moment um around you know we, we got into the habit of compressing everything into a single bundle um and then the bundles got quite large um it, with a lot of javascript a lot of um other libraries um and now there's a conversation going on well you know a, a lot of the technologies have kind of progressed a bit since then loading multiple um files at the same time is, is now a lot more efficient um yeah. You know, where, where's your head at with that? Yeah, so we were meant to get the improvements with HTTP2, but it didn't really work yeah. in the end, did it? No. Uh, so it's quick QUIC, which is baked into Google Chrome for quite a while, yeah. and they were using it. It's basically HTTP over UDP. Right. Um, so UDP is where you send a packet and you don't necessarily need a response. Yeah. Um, so the at the application level, it figures out redelivery and... Um, actually figuring out the size of packets and how often they're sent and things like that. So the application can control all that, um, which is loads faster than um, the TCP stack, yeah. basically. Um, I, I mean, I don't understand how it works, just that it... <laughs> I, I know enough to be dangerous, but um, yeah, I think it's really clever. Uh, and yeah, the, I guess the end goal for... Um, the web is to make it as simple as possible to just load files as if they were just files when you need them yeah. rather than everything all bundled up. So we're going to have to actually start undoing some of the best practices we learned, mm. similar as we did with CSS, with CSS and Garden and um, yeah. <laughs> put semantic classes on everything. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I'm, yeah, I'm going to get some hate for, for those comments because I don't think everyone's on board with Tailwind CSS yet, but um it's, yeah. it, there's been some some Twitter fire, <laughs> <laughs> you know. I, I mean, days since last Twitter argument is always zero. But yeah, that's it. But I do think we we learned some best practices that have probably turned out to be less than good. And I, the, the thing is, you got to remember everything's always evolving. Yeah, and there are different reasons to do things. Yeah, um, I think I think the intent of that bundling. Um, was great obviously and it did work for a long time but then you know the, the complexity of what we were putting in libraries and the the footprint of that was becoming quite a lot of that. and also a lot of the 
you know, when you have a large bundle that might contain, let's say, a hundred files, if only one of them changes to invalidate the entire bundle and redown the whole, redownload the whole lot, is is quite an expensive operation for the for the user. Absolutely. And if you if you're running a large web application. Do you really want users waiting for your whole app to load while they're sat on the login screen? Yeah. Or do you want to really quickly render the login screen and while they're logging in, go and fetch all that stuff for them? Yeah. Because they were, they don't know what the password is or they need to click on the thing for their password manager. <laughs> yeah, it takes a or while. Or do forgotten password process because they've got loads of them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. During that time, you've, you can download half a gigs worth of JavaScript if you really want. Yeah. <laughs> um, don't do that, but yeah. you could do. And the laptop crashes. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's, um, you know, a lot of the, the newer libraries have definitely started to do the eager loading on the front end. So you hover over a link, it already prefetches the page content, um, things like that, you know, we can start to become a lot more efficient with. Yeah, definitely. Um, and some parts of your application, like let's say it generates a PDF or it, it does something less common you could just load the script that does that yeah um using the sort of um normal module format in in javascript now because the, there's been so many different ones yeah. <laughs> like yeah. amd common js all yeah. this stuff but but now you can just do, i think you just do a regular import between you see that as well with the with the workers don't you so you see a lot of that happening so some pages load in the worker um related um scripts and and data just in time um yeah because you said you don't want to be downloading half a gig yeah that's it um I think a lot of code bases out there will all always be transpiling as well. It's like with Babel and things like that. Mm. And we're going to have to slowly unpeel that. Um, or at least I think you can set new config, like all evergreen and last X mm. of these, but just it's worth checking those. Cause yeah. if you go too far back, it's, it's trying to polyfill like really large <laughs> JavaScript features into yeah. IE9 and your customers aren't using IE9 or the rest of your application doesn't even work on IE9 but you're transpiling it for that. It's a really good point that in terms of you know what what's what is your browser support matrix um, yeah. is it as generous as some of these um, some of these you know polyfills and everything are needed for or you know. Yeah because you've got to look at like Google Docs and even Microsoft themselves dropping support for for sort of IE and stuff. Yeah. Um, Office 365 Online, I don't think that fully works in IE9. No. Uh, so if you're still transpiling for that, just probably stop. <laughs> yeah. Unless you have some really strange use case, which I think a lot of people unfortunately do sometimes. Yeah. But, um, it, especially if you're working in the, you know, in corporate the, environment. Yeah, pu corporate or public contracts and yeah. things like that. Which I guess is where a lot of software exists. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think um, the, the sad thing about that is I'm going to have to open that webpack config and uh, actually understand what it means. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> I'll uh, assign that to someone else. So. <laughs> <laughs> will not fix. Um, yeah, webpack confuses me, but it does seem to be what everyone's using. Yeah, you know, again, uh, it's very easy to mock tooling, but a lot of energy and effort and, and oh, yeah. goodwill's gone into making the ecosystem a really good place. So it's, um, it's only only in jest. And there's Parcel and Vite and all the others, which are out there to simplify this. But I think if everyone has their own build tools, then it's going to get even more confusing. It makes it really hard when you go to a new project and you're like, oh, it takes you a while to get your head, no matter how well documented it is. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah. Um, uh, what, what's your view on um, on deferred and lazy loading? I think if you can do it, do it. Um, uh, some third-party scripts 
break when you do it. Yeah. Uh, so you need to double check. But yeah, by and large, I think um, Google Tag Manager has a thing where it can it can actually help scripts that are written in a bad way. Right. Um, so a lot of scripts will do document.write. And I think it can do some magic oh, right. <laughs> where it, it wraps that somehow. Um, so why do some things break um, because of deferred and lazy loading? Because they're expected to be in the head and they want to get their stuff done before anything else loads in the page. Right. Um, so if that's setting up um, some sort of variable that everything can access, so you can push right. analytics data into it or um, let's say you're a tracking pixel thing and you want to you're on a contact confirmation page and you want it runs a function and it calls something in the head and it yeah. gets a bit messy so it relies on quite a linear call stack or quite a linear set of operations to, to happen yeah uh, google analytics get around this by having it's just a variable which is an array and you push stuff onto it and then when the script finally loads it just pulls things off that yeah it pops it off and then it replaces the implementation of push so push then directly does the the actual call, doesn't it? That's good. That, that's clever. I did, I did, like, I did really like that. <laughs> um, so yeah, if if more third parties did stuff like that, it would be really good. Yeah. And ideally, just reduce the number of third party scripts if you can con convince the product owner or customer or mm. whoever. You don't necessarily want to put three different kinds of tracking and add stuff, and cause yeah. it does really slow down the page. It really does. I've I've started to take because um, I think I think as well with some of the analytics stuff obviously analytics are important and, and really understand the metrics of your applications are really huge um as well as especially when you're looking at like user journeys and tracking what people are doing but that's also there's also a negative side to that which is you probably shouldn't be doing that from a privacy point of view um also some of it's or a lot of it is actually vanity related you know yeah you just want to know how many people are visiting certain bits of content and is it important are you using that data for good yeah, um, no, absolutely. And I think some companies, I think you can do it in segment and others, you can actually do server-side tracking. Yeah. So how many visitors you've got and where they're going, you can yeah. track that from the server end. Uh, and then you don't have to put cookies on people's computers and follow and them around the internet. Them, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Netlify and quite a few others have, have implemented all the server-side stuff. You just switch it on. Um, it's it's generic tracking in terms of that it's not... It's not um, User, uh, like identifiable information and stuff like that. It's scrub yeah. the IP out exactly. user agents maybe which is great right yeah that's that's what you want just get the data you need yeah. and no more but i think a lot of tools their default is let's let's get everything let's yeah. get a big net and trudge up half the sea and <laughs> yeah. and then sift through it yeah. which makes sense for their business model because they don't know what you're gonna ask them for later yeah but if you can plan out, I need these metrics, then just collect those. And do you think that so with with this all like um, with a tool like uh, New Relic, do you, do you feel like they are overly generous in their collection, or do you think it's about right? Or um, so what they do is they they actually scrub the values out of um, things like SQL queries, and right. you don't you don't get things like post data and stuff like that. So I think that's about right. Yeah, that's just true. enough to debug the problem, yeah. and I think you, there is ways to scrub more if you if you can. Uh, that's one to be careful with as well, especially if you're working in regulated industries where you've got. To be, obviously, you should always be careful with um, PII, but you should be especially yes. careful in, in those uh, in those scenarios. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. 
Um, cool. So in terms of kind of preloading, caching of static assets and, and things like that, um, do we still need to be conscious of that? Do we need to, you know, because we talked about the bundles, um, you know, possibly working back from that and, and loading resources separately. Um, caching strategies for things like that, you know, do we still need to be, you know, fingerprinting file names to make sure that we can invalidate caches easily? You know, wh- where are we at with that? Yeah, I... I, I I go back and forward on this quite a bit. I think the putting the hashes in the file names is, is really good um, in a lot of instances where you're moving all those files to a CDN. Yeah. If you're serving them from an application and you have blue-green deployments with a cache layer in front, mm. it can cause you quite a few headaches Yeah. Um, because you might grab the first request from the old deploy and then try and grab the asset from the next one. So there's a window of... Yeah of no CSS effect, so no JS, no... Because it's pointing to a file that's no longer there. Because it can't be served out of that pod anymore. Yeah. So you have to move all your assets to S3 and so it's CDN, which is probably sensible anyway. Mm. Um, I think you can also just give this problem to someone else, like Cloudflare, Yeah. Um, and they will they will have sensible defaults. You put it in front of stuff. Mm. You go, right, these are static assets, mostly static. Um, and they will manage all that for you with all the e-tags and bits and pieces. Huge, um, huge fan of Cloudflare. Yeah, I think it's yeah. such an amazing tool chain. I mean, they've just launched an S3 killer, haven't they? I can't remember what it's called. Oh, have they? I is must it, have missed that. Is it R2 or something like oh, that? Oh, right. Um, but it, it looks absolutely amazing because they've found a, a way to incrementally roll it out so you can put it in front of your S3 bucket oh. and it'll go there first and if it doesn't exist it'll fetch it from S3 and bring it into into the Cloudflare once <laughs> and then keep it there forever because the thing about S3 is the cost out of S3 is extraordinary mm-hmm. and it's I think Cloudflare it's, it's so much cheap it's an absolute game changer really that's really clever of them in terms of a migration strategy as well because yeah. it just kind of works yeah. when the request hit zero on S3 <laughs> that's it and their API is S3 compatible so you can you can oh. plug your existing app into it and write directly there if you want to I do wonder whether we're going to be moving more towards a world of you know really compatible services regardless of the vendor so you see a lot of that with um with document databases, you know, that Mongo compatible layer, that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes sense because if the API is pretty good yeah, um, and loads of stuff uses it, the, the thing is I reckon S3 have added so many features over the years. If you've ended up using some of those, yeah. um, you might struggle a bit, which I guess is why Cloudflare have gone, around, gone mm-hmm. down this. You could use both route. Um, and they rarely deprecate anything. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think definitely look at Cloudflare, you can you can switch on some magic switches in there, and it'll make stuff faster. Um, yeah, I think the defaults are, as you said, quite good. Um, speaking of resource earlier, um, we used um, Cloudflare for um, some of the Lad Bible content. Oh right, um, yeah. So for some of the video content, um, automatic um, resizing and scaling based on devices and uh, of videos. Um, so you'd have a single submission file, and it'd do a lot of the cropping and everything for you. Oh, amazing! Um, yeah, Cloudflare service for that is super, super good, super fast. Amazing. Um, yeah. Um, Fastly also have a really cool feature called stale while revalidate, mm-hmm. but implemented at the CDN level. So when people visit your site, you will always get one out of cache until that cache expires. And what what you'll often see is 
that'll be implemented as one low, long, slow request for that one user, and mm. they'll get unlucky, or those users that back up into that time frame. Whereas what this does is it'll it'll still serve on a sale, but in stale one, but in the background it'll go get a fresh copy. Yeah, that's great. And then update the cache, so you, no one ever gets a slow request, mm. and it also hides downtime for static pages. Your nice. app, if, if people logged into your app, obviously they'll know, but it's stale while while revalidate is really really clever oh uh, yeah that's it's that kind of same um mindset as the the out of process um processing i guess um i, I love that kind of pattern um especially when it comes to kind of application performance yeah definitely Awesome. Well, thank you very much for that, Josh. I think we covered quite a few areas. Obviously, there's still tons more to talk about in terms of front-end performance, but I think we've covered a few interesting topics. Uh, Do check out a few of our other episodes online, and we'll see you next time.